You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 6th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. Iran and Iran watchers baffled by widespread outbreaks of something at schools. US President Joe Biden reminds Americans not to take their vote for granted. And how much do you care if your Swiss chocolate is in fact Slovakian? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Julie Norman and Michael Binion will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear about a film festival hoping to change how we view the role of women in the mafia. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, joined today by Julie Norman, co-director of the UCL Centre on US Politics, and by Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for the Times newspaper. Hello to you both. Um, Julie, by way of light introductory banter, I believe you have both a book to boast about and an upcoming trip. That is both right. Yes, I have a new book out as of last week um, with some co-authors called Sounding Conflict. And we look at how uh, music, sound, theater, storytelling, different arts forms are used as counter narratives in conflict times. So my work is from Lebanon. Colleagues are working in Brazil, Northern Ireland and elsewhere. So check out Sounding Conflict if you're a radio and sound person. Um, Will it be available in all good stores? It will. It's. Uh, I think it's on Amazon already. And, okay. Uh, if, if you do Amazon. But yes, it's it's coming. So I just published. Um, so yeah, we're excited about that. And separately, I'm off to Iraq this weekend for a project with British Council, um, working with young people to identify issues that are most important to them in different governorates. Okay, well, do tell us all about that when you come back, because you are going, it's a very quick trip, though. You're just going to Erbil and Baghdad in a matter of 72 hours. <laughs> that's about right. Yes, it's a flyby, <laughs> unfortunately. But uh, that's that's just the way it goes during the term. Uh, and Michael, you are, you are off to somewhere in its own weird way nearly as exotic. Yes, well, it's pretty remote. It's the island of St. Helena in the middle of the Atlantic, where Napoleon spent his last six years in exile. And it will be actually the fifth time I've been there. So that's pretty interesting. What, what, what is there to do in five visits to St. Helena? Oh, all manner of things to are, do. Are, I mean, you, are, are, are you just visiting where Napoleon spent his time and, 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 <laughs> and gloating? Yeah, I've done that several times, <laughs> yes, and, and gloated. I mean, it's beautifully preserved. Now, I'm actually going with a, a, a new group. Well, it's it's been going 10 years, called the Friends of the British Overseas Territories. Because St. Helena, most people have never heard of it, but in fact, it is Britain's second oldest colony after Bermuda. Uh, so it's more than 400 years it's been British territory. Uh, it used to be a very important trading point, well, a naval point, when all the ships came round the Cape and went uh, through St. Helena to refuel and uh, all that, all the sailing ships. And now hardly a single ship ever calls there. And does this society exist out of an abiding fascination with and love for the British overseas territories? Or is it not coincidental to the fact that quite a lot of them have very sunny. A <laughs> uh, bit of both, really. <laughs> well, I think certainly the first one, interest in the overseas territories, there are 14 of them, and uh, most people, I mean, many of them are in the Caribbean, that's true, but some are <laughs> pretty remote. I mean, you know, Tristan de Cunha, right down in the South uh, Atlantic, that's pretty windswept and bleak, but uh, 261 people there, but uh, still, still bigger than Pitcairn with 49 people. <laughs> well, indeed. 
Uh, we, we genuinely look forward to hearing more about St Helena when you're back as well. Uh, and we will return to both Julie and Michael in just a minute. But first, on today's show, we are going to Iran, where there is widespread bewilderment at thousands of reports of mysterious illness from dozens of girls' schools in at least 21 of Iran's 30 provinces. Though some suspect poisoning by ultra-hardline elements seeking to disrupt the education of women or punish participant in recent protests, Supreme Leader and ultra-hardline element himself, Ayatollah Khamenei, has threatened perpetrators, should there be any, with the death penalty. Well, joining us with more on this is Holly Dagres, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, editor of The Iranist and frequent guest on the Monocle Daily. Um, Holly, first of all, what do we actually know about this? There is an awful lot of supposition and conjecture and not all that many facts. Well, Andrew, first, thanks for having me on the program. Um, Well, this actually has been going on for some time now. It started on November 30th in the holy city of Rome, where we heard of the first reported poisoning of schoolgirls there. Um, But ever since, we've seen an escalation. um, And it wasn't until about mid-February that it became a bigger story where it started spreading to other cities that parents rightfully worried about the state of their well-being of their daughters who were um, having symptoms of headaches, fatigue, nausea, numbness, ending up in the hospital, and them demanding authorities to take action and look into this, that this become a bigger story. And um, as you've reported, there's been over a thousand girls that have been poisoned. We already have reportedly one that's been dead, um, an 11-year-old girl by the name of Fatima Rezaei in Rome. And um, it it seems that this is ongoing. I I really have to emphasize on the fact that um, this is an authoritarian government that has eyes and ears everywhere. And it's very hard to believe that they're not able to understand what's happening in their own country. Uh, How certain is it, though, that this is attributable to poisoning? Because a lot of the symptoms that are being described are not incongruent with outbreaks of various sorts of mass hysteria, which in the last decade alone have taken place in uh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Malaysia, Kenya, in quite similar environments. Well, I've been hearing this theory of mass hysteria, and um, I have to say that as a, a, a former schoolgirl in Iran, where would this hysteria be coming from? Um, is it? Be, are you saying it's related to the protests? I, I, I mean, we have to remember that this there's been ongoing protests since the murder of Masa Gina Amini um, in mid-September, and it was these very protests were led by schoolgirls, by Iranian Gen Z. And a lot of Iranians think that this is, um, I don't know what element of the Islamic Republic, but the Islamic Republic taking revenge on these girls and punishing them for their behavior. And that seems to be a very widespread theory. And when you have security forces raiding hospitals and telling girls to stay silent and their families to be silent, and a a journalist in Iran being arrested instead of a perpetrator or many, I would say countless perpetrators, given how widespread this is, this is leading more and more evidence to be pointed at the government itself. Uh, You may have already partially answered this question by referring there to journalists being arrested, but how much and what kind of coverage, if any, is this getting in media inside Iran? Well, state media is pointing the finger more or less at the foreign hand because Iranian authorities have made that argument. Um, And then there's, of course, been this element of maybe this is like a hardline group, but 
you know, it, the Islamic Republic's been around for four decades. We haven't seen any hardline group, if we quote unquote, um, act in this matter to prevent girls from getting an education. So why now? So, I mean, if anything, I still think that this must be related to the protests. I mean, it seems that all um, arrows are pointing, pointing in that direction. And when you... Um, when you just follow the story itself, it just does not make any sense because there's no precedent there of something like this happening ever before. What kind of impact do you see this having over coming weeks and months? Are, are there reports of concerned parents, probably not unreasonably, uh, keeping their children home from school? Well, we've certainly heard that in recent weeks, but I mean, if you look at social media right now, where, where we're getting most of our information on the story, because social media is the only way for Iranians to have their voices heard by the world and why it's being reported by the Western media, is um, that parents are gathering, um, they're protesting outside of schools. Some, I think I just saw a video, I believe this morning, of a father trying to climb over a wall to get to his daughter to make sure she's okay because they're not getting the answers from authorities and they're rightfully upset and angry and they're gathering in protests outside of these schools and people are chanting against the regime they're chanting against Khamenei calling up saying death to the dictator um that this is a child killing regime and they're also chanting women life freedom so uh, if anything I, I see that this these incidents might push more people out in the streets rather than the opposite effect, which I think that um, was the intention here was to suppress the people. Holly Dagres, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to The Daily. We will bring Michael and Julie back in now and we will go to the United States where President Joe Biden has been speaking in Selma, Alabama, where 58 years ago tomorrow, a civil rights march setting out for Montgomery was set upon by police. Biden was speaking at Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge, site of some of the worst violence and a bridge still named somewhat inexplicably after a US senator from Alabama who also held senior rank in both the Confederate States Army and the Ku Klux actual Klan. Let's hear first a little bit of what President Biden had to say. Selma is a reckoning. The right to vote, the right to vote, to have your vote counted, is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible. Without it, without that right, nothing is possible. And this fundamental right remains under assault Uh, President Joe Biden speaking at Selma, Alabama. Julie, it's hard to argue with those fine and noble sentiments from the president there, but that sounds very much like the rallying cry of a beleaguered opposition activist and not the, you know, president of the United States. Uh, Isn't the right to vote guaranteeing the right to vote, protecting the right to vote, actually his department? (laughs) Well, it certainly is. And I would say, you know, Selma is such a symbolic and a real site as well for civil rights historically and has become a sort of focal point for the current um, the current politics around voting rights, which I would say since the pandemic has really shifted to a new level. New, a lot of uh, new voting measures are put in place during the pandemic, such as early voting, voting by mail, these kinds of things. Um, and Biden and many Democrats are looking to ensure those. Uh, many Republican states are looking to roll those back. And so that's where a lot of that is is situated now. And I think Biden's trying to, to kind of use this, uh, this moment went down in Selma this week to kind of reinvigorate that a bit. Um, Michael, are there genuine grounds for concern about the 
well, protections of voting rights in the United States. And and Julie is, of course, right. There are fairly clear-cut cases of the Republicans in various states trying to make it more difficult for people less likely to vote for them to vote. Yes, that's been going on for some years. I mean, uh, earlier, the, the, the technique was gerrymandering, which was jigging, rejigging the constitution, the, the, the constituencies in such a way that, you know, all uh, black voters were in f- some really weird shaped uh, configuration. There are some fairly hilarious examples. Yeah, this, I mean, yes. it, ridiculous, uh, effectively disenfranchising uh, largely black voters. That was the aim for those that were gerrymandering. And that's been going on for some years, especially in southern states. Um, but then other things have come in and particularly uh, this uh, kind of widespread uh, damning of postal votes, saying that by their nature, they're never going to be free. Then, Well, they're free, but they're not fair because there's cheating. Uh, wrong ones are counted. They're miscounted. And we saw that really in the main uh, presidential election, where the postal votes were seen by Trump as a way of uh, being cheated of his election because he said Democrats were using this technique to, um, to, to, to mess up the figures. Um, Julie, again, uh, I'm wondering about the optics of this and possibly I'm overthinking this because Biden might be able to assume that, you know, the the general understanding of comparative U.S. history among the U.S. voting public is, 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 is not this trivial. But the president at the time of the march from Selma was, of course... Uh, Biden's fellow Democrat, Lyndon Johnson, eight days after the first Selma march, he introduced the Voting Rights Act. Is is Biden inviting unflattering comparisons, at least among the kind of tragic nerds who know that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like you'd really be getting into nerd territory there for many. And, uh, you know, I think Biden's already kind of made his comparisons with LBJ when he was trying to float Build Back Better and kind of be a big government leader in his first term. And that's kind of gone by the wayside now. Um, But yeah, I mean, this this is him really trying to draw on that civil rights history. Um, I would say, I would note that he's kind of moved away from some of the language he was using around this time last year when he was calling some of the measures um, Jim Crow 2.0, those kinds of things, which I think was maybe pushing a little bit too far for for many in the middle to to jump on board with this. But this remains a big issue for Democrats. It's been, I would say, going for a number of years now. Obviously, the pandemic pushed it to a new level, but um, we had some Supreme Court cases also that changed that Voting Rights Act that you just mentioned and, and made some of these current changes possible. So this has been kind of a slow burn issue. And I think Biden's really trying to capitalize it kind of going forward to 2024, something that he knows is really important to Democrats and to many um, Democrats in the South in particular. Uh, I will come back to that thought of 2024. But uh, Michael, it struck me that some some of what the president had to say tapped into not just the United States culture war, but the, um, the culture war that the United States has kind of exported to the rest of the world. And thanks for that, Julie. Um, but he, he, he did talk about how we should learn everything. And I quote, the good, the bad, the truth of who we are as a nation. Now, the United Kingdom and actually my own home country of Australia uh, still struggles with what seems to me is a fairly non-controversial idea there. Yes, you mean the idea of uh, having a free vote that everyone is entitled to? And and, and also reflecting on not just the stuff we've done right, but the stuff we haven't. Oh, yes. Well, I think uh, all societies ought to reflect on where they've achieved what they want and where they haven't. And uh, that's also part of the job of the press. I mean, that's what it's meant to do, to hold the polity, the the nation's uh, uh, rulers, to account and make sure that the laws that we have 
are enforced properly or that there isn't cheating or there isn't corruption. And I'm afraid uh, cheating and corruption are ever-present in any society, and you have to be very vigilant to stop that. Uh, Julie, you mentioned 2024. Did part of what Biden had to say, especially the lines about let's finish the job, uh, sound a bit like he is foreshadowing his announcement that he intends to go round again? Oh, absolutely. I think it's really just a matter of time. And I could see this Selma speech almost being a bit of a, a prelude or a setup to when that announcement will come probably soon. And and the point on kind of the teaching the past, too, that was very much a direct uh, jibe to Ron DeSantis, who is likely going to run on the Republican ticket and has been you know, making some uh, moves to perhaps circumscribe some of the um, histories that, that will be taught and how they can be taught. So this was very much um, a speech that I think is looking ahead to 2024. And just finally on this, Julie, and I, I am not holding you personally responsible, <laughs> but after the last two or three years of the amount of reorganizing, deplinthing, and renaming that has gone on to a lot of America's civic furniture, how on earth is the Edmund Pettus Bridge of <laughs> all things still named after Edmund Pettus of all people? You know, I I thought that when we were looking at the stories, for I was like, is this still what it's called? And I, I don't know if they kept it that simply because it became so emblematic of that time and the cruelty of racial injustice at the time that the bridge itself kind of became a a monument to what had happened there. And so I imagine there must have been some decision to keep it there because of the history, which is not a decision that we usually make now. We usually make the, the choice to change it. But I, I thought that was interesting because there, there mm. had to have been, there had to be a choice made there. <laughs> and I'm curious to know more about it. Julie Norman and Michael Binion, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. But now, what do you think of when you hear the word mafia? Is it a scene from Goodfellas, The Godfather, The Godfather 2 or 3? Classic mob films, many of them about Italian-American crime families, have been influential in shaping people, how, how people rather, imagine the mafia, but they often exclude some of the key players who keep these criminal empires running. Women, which is something that Donne de Mafia, a mini film festival in London, wants to change. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett went along to the Garden Cinema over the weekend to find out more. Buonasera. Buonasera. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? If you had come to me in friendship, and the scum that ruined your daughter would be suffering this very day. The opening scene of Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 blockbuster The Godfather, about a Sicilian mafia family in New York City. The Corleones are powerful, violent and deeply patriarchal. But while Italian mafia groups are murderous and wield significant power, it's not just men who pull the strings in these criminal empires. Failia Alum is a professor of comparative organised crime and corruption at the University of Bath and an organiser of the film festival Donna di Mafia, along with Cinema Italia UK. Her recent research has focused on the role of women in organised crime. I caught up with her on the festival's opening day. The traditional images are very binary that we have is that, you know, the women are not there, they're marginal, they're irrelevant. And the evidence that I was collecting just wasn't, it just wasn't matching up. So that's where I kind of wanted to sort of take and make my evidence talk and listen to the voices of women, which is why when then we had started having a conversation with Cinema Italia UK about, you know, was it possible to focus not on women as victims or as irrelevant quantities, but as women with their voice who are actors in their own story. Felia says academics and even law enforcement have tended to underestimate and ignore the women who are active in mafia groups. 
we have um, not been interested in their lives and how they perhaps navigate very different decision-making questions and issues and there's that whole area so in a way when I look at it for me it's we've got a photograph and we have a family within that photograph and there are men members and there are female members and up until now we've just looked at the men and we've just seen the men's faces so my research is very much about filling in the gaps putting the faces back on the women one of the women given a face a voice and a name at Donna Di Mafia is Antonella the shadowy central figure of Stay Behind Stay behind. Servire la libertà in silenzio. Quale libertà, quale prezzo? Chiedetela Nato e CIA. The short film, shown on the first day of the festival, is inspired by Operation Gladio, a joint Cold War spying mission by the Italian government, NATO and the CIA. Many of its operatives were involved in the mafia. A mysterious Antonella is mentioned in official documents, but little is known about her. Strano, come le donne che non erano picciotti. Eppure noi c'eravamo. Antonella was an associate of Monsterface, the nickname for an Operation Gladio agent who was implicated in mafia murders. Here's Stay Behind director Federica Schiavello. So through him, I was able to track a storyline for her. But you don't want to talk about a man because it's a very man-led story and all of these characters that we hear about all the time are men. And I wanted to highlight how, you know, all of these women were seen all the time, but nobody really focused on them just because they were women, <laughs> probably. Along with the other films shown at the festival, the third iteration of Donna Di Mafia, Stay Behind offers a more nuanced picture of women's role in the mafia and its impact. In Una Femina, The Code of Silence, a young woman is trapped in the Calabrian Mafia by family ties. But, says Federica, to represent the Mafia more accurately, popular culture also needs to look beyond Italy. We think Mafia is all in Italy. That's not the truth. We, it comes from there, and of course many Mafia come from other places, but money laundering and you know other sort of businesses go beyond these countries because mafias are quite smart they keep the countries that they're from poor so they can recycle nice and you know uh, clean money anywhere else where mafia is not really a thing and if you think about it in Italy we have laws for mafia that the European Union still doesn't have so it's still recognized as a territorial threat. Academic Felia Alum agrees that film and TV has a role in shaping our understanding of the mafia for better or worse. I think that popular culture perhaps has been complicit in reinforcing some images that don't help us understand. Um, in other words, whether it's The Godfather, where women are very kind of absent to a certain degree, although I'm told that in the maybe Godfather 3, there are women who appear in uh, The Sopranos. The women are part of the family and they hold it all together, but they're not really addressed to a great extent, although they are there. Maybe you'd like to spend the rest of our anniversary with him. I was over there for 10 friggin' minutes, Carmela. Don't do this. All right, Tony. At least I know where I stand. So I think that popular culture, and that's why these films that are coming out with this new generation of Italian film directors are starting to push those boundaries of complexities and difficult situations women find themselves in because being born into a criminal family is not easy, you know, to walk away. And we, we kind of don't really think about that. And we don't think about the fact that women can be violent. Um, there is a tendency of seeing violence as a masculine value only. In the past, Italian law enforcement have locked up male mafia leaders only to find their criminal operations were still running, thanks to female family members on the outside. Turning our focus on women mafia members is important for legal efforts to tackle the groups too. 
For Monocle in London, I'm Lillian Fawcett. That was Lillian Fawcett reporting there. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, it may often seem in a turbulent world consumed by fracas or fracases, stramashes and general brouhaha's or bruise-haha, whichever is correct, that it is impossible to get everyone to agree on anything. However, everyone has agreed on a treaty governing the high seas, or at least agreed that they simply cannot endure any more negotiating of the minutiae of same, which often amounts to roughly the same outcome. Nearly 200 countries have signed off on this document at the UNHQ in New York, a final 36-hour heave bringing to an end a process which has been grinding on for the thick end of 20 years. Um, Michael, can you sum up 20 years of abstruse negotiation vis-à-vis what kind of outcome this actually provides for the high seas? (laughs) I suppose you could, yes. You could say for the first time, a large part of the oceans will receive proper protection. There will be environmental protection. Uh, There will be ability to enforce and police and regulate the way uh, fishing is carried out on the main ocean uh, to stop mining of the ocean bed, which could be dangerous and polluting and cause all sorts of trouble, to stop basically a free-for-all exploiting exploiting the ocean's resources, which uh, in turn degrades the quality of the high seas uh, much more than people ever realised. Uh, Julie, it does seem kind of weird that this is something we haven't done before now, <laughs> or does that in itself tell us something about how difficult it is to get 200 countries or near enough to actually agree on something? Yeah, I think both, because when I saw this story first, I was like, oh, this is kind of like old school environmentalism. Like, this was kind of like when I was in school, like, save the whales and like save the oceans. Like, it's different than the kind of what we hear now. And then when you look back, I mean, these conversations started in 2004, I think, for the specific mm-hmm. um, treaty. So really almost like 20 years. But but again, so crucial and really just mind boggling that like most of the oceans really have just been like a free for up until now. And all our concerns for biodiversity, for water, all these things that this was, uh, yeah, just kind of like floating, uh, pun intended there. So, Is it possible to quantify, Michael, how significant a diplomatic accomplishment this is? I mean, an agreement like this, to what always puts it in perspective for me is like the last time I tried to get five people to agree on somewhere to have lunch. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then mm. you think about getting 200 countries to sign yes. up to something. Well, it is quite an achievement, particularly because they're told to lead, leave their other grievances at the door. In mm. other words, all the other quarrels they're having with each other, and there are plenty, I mean, to get Russia and America to sign up together at the middle of the Ukraine war. To get Russia and nearly anybody. Well, indeed, yes. Uh, and to get all the others who have particular quarrels with their neighbors or have a, a beef about some area of ocean which they think should be theirs and theirs alone, that is quite an achievement. And it's very difficult. Um, it's got to be seen to be in the interests of everyone, rather like a sort of global protection or fight the campaign for um, reducing carbon emissions, things of this kind, which are basically for all humanity. Now, to get countries to think that way is difficult. And so many countries will try to hold up the whole proceedings because they want some special clause put in that benefits them. Mm. Uh, And that's always a danger. You've got some stupid thing that's irrelevant to most people, which is holding up the entire negotiation. And maybe that's what's been happening for 20 years. Maybe they've been batting away all these other objections that have been raised uh, one by one and getting people to say, all right, all right, you know, that's your concern. But in the end, they have come up with a general deal 
which everyone has signed up to. Now, the, the next question, of course, is enforcement. That's mm. not as easy. You know, you produce the declaration. How do you legally make sure that it's properly policed and that the oceans really are protected? It's, it's going to have been, isn't it, some just obdurate landlocked country just holding the thing up out of spite. <laughs> exactly. That's it's going, to, it's going to have been Bolivia or yeah, something. So, yeah, exactly, because they've got some beef with their next-door neighbour about they, something else. They actually do. There is, speaking as a bit of a fan of obscure maritime disputes, there is a whole thing between Bolivia and, I think, Chile. Chile, northern yeah, Chile. Yes, that's, that's the been one. Going, that's a ripper. Been that going one. on for quite a while, that one. <laughs> an, an absolute belter. Um, Julie, I can't decide, though, whether we should be inspired or angry about the fact that it clearly is possible for the world to agree on something because is it naive to think well if we can agree on this what about you know i'm waving at the grand scheme of things here you know everything else yeah it would seem so and i i guess one thing is i mean there are obviously countries that have started explorations of deep seas and have you know shipping routes and mining and whatnot but i think it's because so much that these are unexplored or underexplored areas that countries could sign on to this it's harder when you're talking about you know climate change policies that are affecting um industries that are kind of in your country and are going to be affected or jobs that are going to be affected this this is something that i think because it's kind of unknown and untapped, it was easier to get the buy-in and things that are kind of already in play. That, that's where it's harder, I think, on the policy side to sometimes get these things through. I would just wave a flag for Britain in this one because... <laughs> Go Britain, on. <laughs> well, uh, Britain actually has a huge amount of sea that belongs to Britain because of the overseas territories. Uh, the overseas territories have 200-mile zones all around them, and many of them are little islands in the middle of nowhere. So that means quite a large expanse of ocean in which protection zones have already already been set up. Uh, and uh, the Indian Ocean Territory, for example, there's a, a huge area there, which is uh, where fishing is regulated, where there are protections or licenses for what you can do there. And that is actually something that has pioneered uh, environmental protection for others to, to follow. Uh, just a final quick thought on this one, Michael, and it's the, it's the other reason that I like this story, although I suspect the lesson will languish unheeded because this treaty has not been widely triumphantly reported in the headlines, largely because it is incomprehensible and tedious. But that, <laughs> but that is my point. A lot of political progress is incomprehensible and tedious. It's incredibly painstaking, difficult, detail-oriented, and just excruciating, requiring extraordinary levels of dedication. And I, I kind of feel that that, that should get more of a, a ballyhoo than it does. Yes, well, I think we have to thank the dedicated enthusiasts. There are some people, you know, who devote half their lives to things like this. And, I mean, the sea is particularly one that seems to engulf people, as it were. Um, <laughs> the uh, law of the sea, which was the previous big international agreement on uh, where people's jurisdiction applies, how far out to sea it goes, that was also extremely difficult and painstaking. It took ages to negotiate. And there are some people who are so wrapped up in this, it make, they make it their life's work, that they carry on, even though the politicians come and go and you know pick up the reefs and say, what's this? Somebody there has followed it the whole way through. I, I do enjoy a good maritime dispute. There's an absolute ripper between Croatia and Slovenia, to which I, I, do, <laughs> I do commend our listeners. Uh, but finally to Switzerland, uh, another landlocked country, maybe it was them, where a rebrand is in offing for the Toblerone, that chunky chocolate disproportionately consumed by children whose parents only realised when they reached airside duty-free that they'd forgot to buy them a present on their business trip. <laughs> it is to be rebranded. The image of the summit of the Matterhorn, which presently adorns it, is to go in recognition of the fact that Toblerone will herewith mostly be a product not of Switzerland but Slovakia, and under Swiss law, that which is not made 
made in Switzerland may not pass itself off as such. Um, Julie, first of all, I, I will lay out my own stall here. I do not much care for Toblerone. I don't think it's very good. Do you not? You no. don't like the, like, the, mm. it is a bit sticky in the teeth, the, like, yeah, honey I, nugget I, situation. I, I, I find, I'm not a big fan, honestly, of nuts or nut-related produce in chocolate. Uh, okay, I'm fine with that. I will say it's a little hard to eat sometimes, but I am glad they went back to the condensed version. They, they were kind of cheating us for a they, couple they, of years. They, they did spreading out. They did do a thing to widespread ridicule of trying to stretch out the peaks to put less chocolate in the weird triangular packet. Yes, I, I took more issue with that than the Matterhorn. And now that I think of it, I'm not sure actually nougat is nut-related, is it? It's more of a no, marzipan no, thing? Not, no, you're missing out. It's, it's a wonderful taste. Uh, nougat? Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, it's uh, all sorts of people. I mean, the French are nuts about nougat. Well, hey. <laughs> uh, um, Michael, do, do you think that inherently the idea of Slovakian chocolate sounds less inherently appealing than Swiss? It chocolate? does, yes. Really? Of course it does, yes. I mean, Switzerland has made a name for now, chocolate. Many Slovakian listeners would take this yes. up with Michael directly, not Monocle 24 as an <laughs> Well, I mean, Belgium would be a runner-up. I mean, they, they've made quite a name for chocolate and, and have gone quite far with that. But there's this idea of branding of a place or a name or something like that, which is becoming more and more common. I mean, people, uh, you know, there's Parma ham can only be made in Parma. And now we've got all this stuff with various cheeses that can only be made where they originally came from. We've got things in Britain. Bakewell tart can only come from Bakewell, which is some little town in Derbyshire. And all these things. I mean, it gets more and more ridiculous. We're going to think, well, can Venetian blinds only be made in Venice? Or <laughs> you know, can you only catch German measles in Germany? Or something like that. But no, I mean, places that have made something and exported it and done well want to protect the brand. Um, I would just say, before we move on to other issues raised by this vital story, in defence of Slovakian chocolate, the name of the establishment escapes me for the moment, but I can tell viewers that somewhere in Bratislava's old town, and by golly, I hope I can find it again when we go back for Globesec in a few months, there is a glorious wine bar, which and it's you know it's got the you know the the wall height bookcases and the big leather armchairs. It sells nothing but wine, posh cheese, and gourmet chocolate. Hey. Yeah, I, 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 I did take some dragging out of there. I can tell you. <laughs> um, and yes, I will most assuredly be back. I don't know off the top of my head whether the chocolate was in fact Slovakian, uh, but it was marvelous. Um, Julie, to return to the subject at hand, they are going to go on the packaging with a generic mountain instead? I mean, there are mountains in Slovakia. I looked it up. The The highest peak in Slovakia is known as Gerlach. It is in the High Tatras. Why not use that instead? Yeah, I do, I do think they should stick with the mountain, because honestly, I think that didn't become a thing on the packaging till the 70s. But like because the chocolate is like little peaks like mountains, I was like, how did they not use the mountains the whole time? But they, ca they can't use the Matterhorn because the Matterhorn is Swiss. No, I know, but I think they should stick with the mountain theme. It just like, it fits the chocolate shape. Uh, do you think, Julie, that there are any American products that should be specifically branded American to the exclusion of everybody else, <laughs> to the exclusion of everybody else, or is it just that American products are by definition now such global products that the de the difference is scarcely important. Oh, well, I think there's some that um, we, we take pride in how kind of how um, how Americanized they are. Like American cheese comes to mind because it's, it's horrible. It's it, the American can stay, but what's been taken away is the cheese part. You have to say like American like pasteurized food product or something because it's not like technically cheese even by U.S. standards anymore. But it's so good. Well, there are certain things like grits that you're associate. I mean, that can only oh, yeah. come from the South. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Regional foods that, that have to be true. sort of branded. Yes. Um, I, I would say there's no, there's no like, 
mark on it there. There's no, no Matterhorn equivalent, unfortunately. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the South, uh, Michael, because it does rather cue up our slightly melancholy outro to today's episode, which we will get to shortly after I have thanked our panellists, Julie Norman and Michael Binion. Today's show was produced by Paige Reynolds, researched by Andre Nikolai Pamintu, and our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. <laughs> And playing us out and returning somewhat to the theme of Alabama established earlier, Gary Rossington, last of the founder members of Southern Rock Pathfinders, Leonard Skinner, has died at the age of 71. Rossington co-wrote, among others, Sweet Home Alabama, a vastly more nuanced song that is often appreciated by those who bellow it as a kind of anthem for the Deep South. He also played the slide guitar on Skinner's monstrous boogie epic, Freebird. Rossington was one of the survivors of the 1977 plane crash, which killed three members of the group and three others others. He overcame dreadful injuries to learn to play guitar again and was still a member of the group. Vale Gary Rossington. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 